Welcome everyone. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Uh, welcome to another of our work in progress talks. Work in progress talks are presentations given by faculty and grad graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center about their research projects. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I'll moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom. You can activate captions using the live transcript option. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker for today. Lisa Fink is a doctoral candidate at the University of Oregon in the Environmental Sciences Studies and Policy Program. Lisa earned her BS in zoology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and was a Fulbright Fellow in Literature in Mongolia, where she spent 13 months collecting and translating contemporary Mongolian poetry. After returning to the US, Lisa completed an MFA in poetry at the University of Virginia, where she was a Henry Hoynes Fellow. The author of a poetry chapbook, Her Disco, from 2013, Lisa has published poems in Ecotone, The Boston Review, The Minnesota Review, and Forklift, Ohio, among others. Lisa's research interests include animality, ecopoetics, ecophenomenology, somatic poetry, embodiment, biosemiotics, contemporary poetry, hybrid poetics, spatial theory, and the ways in which culture frames our understanding of the environment and our action in action regarding environmental crises. A 2021-2022 OHC dissertation fellow, Lisa will discuss her project, Unsettled Ecologies, Alienated Species, Indigenous Restoration, and U.S. Empire in a Time of Climate Crisis. Welcome, Lisa. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, and thank you for that kind introduction. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen and get started. I want to thank everyone at, actually, let me just minimize this. Okay, great. I want to thank everyone at the Oregon Humanities Center and to everyone here who's joining us. I really am grateful that you're here. I've conceived, conceived of this talk as a potential job talk, so I invite your questions and feedback. So today I'll be talking about indigenous perspectives on species considered invasive. In the talk, I'll explore interview data from fieldwork I conducted with nine Native nations in the Upper Great Lakes region, alongside Native American literature in relation to indigenous ontologies or ways of being, epistemologies or ways of knowing, and cosmologies. I will show that while the communities with which I spent time acknowledged the irreplaceable value of deep relationships developed over millennia with the plants and animals in their homelands, they also frame supposedly invasive species as kin with whom emerging relations are part of indigenous futurities. I also demonstrate that Native American literatures at times reinforce colonial timelines and narratives advanced by Western science about such species. Yet this literature also envisions the possibilities of becoming related with the plants and animals contributing to the environmental change in their homelands. I ultimately argue that these perspectives and practices rooted as they are in indigenous ways of knowing and being in the world, evidence indigenous resurgence and continuing struggles by native nations for self-determination and sovereignty related not only to land management, but also to everyday practices of being indigenous. So I wanna start with these words. Uh, Sean Wilson writes, 
quote, as we indigenous scholars have begun to assert our power, we are no longer allowing others to speak in our stead. We are beginning to articulate our own research paradigms and to demand that research conducted in our communities follows our codes of conduct and honors our systems of knowledge and worldviews. So these come from Sean Wilson's Research is Ceremony, Indigenous Research Methods. And I share these words as a reminder of my responsibilities as a non-Indigenous researcher working with Indigenous communities and Indigenous texts. I research and write from the location of a white settler living on the territories of the Clackamas and Cowlitz peoples. I acknowledge that they are the first and rightful inhabitants of the land and waters now called Portland, Johnson Creek, the Columbia River, the University of Oregon, where I am a student and have studied and taught, is a colonial structure built on stolen lands of the Kalapuya peoples. UO's programs privilege dominant Western knowledge and our academic relationships are rooted in power relations structured not only by colonialism, but also by racial capitalism and heteropatriarchy. In this context, I am deeply humbled again and again by my indigenous friends, teachers, students, and mentors who have been very generous and patient with me. I acknowledge the relational and emotional labor of those who help guide my research and who have worked with me. And to be accountable to indigenous peoples means to me to interrupt colonial erasures and to wage critiques of the discourses and practices of land management, which for too long have fortified settler colonial values and practices. Sorry. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about the project that what I'm going to be talking about today um, comes out of this larger project. It's my first book project. It traces environmental thinking about invasive species from Western colonial, indigenous, and anti-imperialist perspectives within the context of settler colonialism, immigration, and climate change. And so here's a just a brief view of the table of contents. In the first chapter, I offer a case study of Asian carp where I examine how racial and settler colonial logics undergird Western colonial approaches, echoing anti-immigrant sentiment. In the second chapter, I explore how anti-imperialist approaches evidenced in Asian American literature offer a reading of the imperialist structures embedded in those Western colonial approaches. They also provide a historical and uniquely decolonial perspective on Western colonial discourse. And then the third and fourth chapters where I will, I'll be talking primarily about these today. I investigate how indigenous approaches suggest a form of conservation based on relationality, recipro reciprocity and responsibility rather than exclusion and exploitation. So throughout the rest of the talk, I will refer to what are commonly called invasive species as alienated species. In my larger project, I argue that invasive species is an ahistorical term that obscures these species entanglements with settler colonialism and racial capitalism. Moreover, the use of the militarized biological metaphor of invasion limits possible conservation responses to these species to a more violent command and control response. So I offer the term alienated species to signal the ways in which these species too have been impacted by capitalism and colonialism, specifically that they've been alienated from their original homelands and thrust into unknown regions where they've been forced to adapt or die. And with this term, alienated species, I hope to make visible the interagency between the humans and non-humans involved in their phenomenological entanglements with colonialism and capitalism. And I'm happy to talk more about this term during the Q&A.
So my research combines literary and cultural studies with humanistic social science methodologies to examine human nature and human animal interactions, entanglements and emergences alongside racial formation, colonial violence and environmental degradation. For this first book project, I conducted interviews with 45 tribal natural resource and cultural resource managers, harvesters and elders with nine native nations in the US upper Midwest. My research protocol, including the research, the interview questions, were reviewed and approved by all nine Native nations through their own rigorous institutional review work processes or by their tribal governance body, which, you know, such as a tribal council or governing board. In addition, I engage with the decolonizing methodology of embodied engagement inspired by more than representational theory, which argues that one needs to inhabit a place to know it. It also emphasizes that the knowledge one derives from dwelling in a place is co-constituted with the non-humans there. Landscape isn't background. As Tim Ingolds writes, quote, knowledge is gained by moving about in it, a place, exploring it, attending to it, ever alert to the signs by which it is revealed, unquote. With embodied engagement, temporalities are as important as spatialities, which recognizes that processes take place over time. My focus on embodied engagement with my methods is drawn explicitly from indigenous scholarship. I spent three and a half months in the ceded and unceded territories of the nine native nations with whom I collaborated, visiting all but one of the nine reservations and spending time in each one that I visited. When I was invited, I attended community events, participated in ceremony and feasts, made baskets, harvested black ash and wild rice and much more. And as part of this embodied engagement, I draw on my training as a naturalist to practice multi-species ethnography through which I observe the interactions of people, plants and animals in the places where I spent time. And the conclusions I draw from this field work directly inform my literary analysis of Native American and indigenous literatures. So before I dive into the rest of the talk, I just want to give you a brief roadmap for where we're going to go. I'm going to talk first, drawing on my fieldwork about how I see um, indigenous perspectives and practices related to invasive species as being part of Anishinaabe resurgence, and, and talk a little bit about radical relatedness, place agency for the Anishinaabe in relation to alienated species. And then I'll move on to looking at Native American literatures, specifically Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, and looking at how we see um, becoming relations, this radical relatedness in action in that text. Also, again, specifically building relations with alienated species. And I'll briefly conclude with some future directions that I'm hoping to take this work in. So moving on to the main part of my talk, I argue that Anishinaabe perspectives and practices regarding alienated species constitute indigenous resurgence. Indigenous resurgence refers to the strategies and tactics by which indigenous peoples pursue immediate and long-term goals of what Ty Ayaki Alfred and Jeff Corntassel call being indigenous, which includes both daily practice Practices, such as harvesting new plants and animals and larger political projects, such as efforts toward self-determination and land management, both on and off reservation. Moreover, indigenous resurgence is, by definition, future-oriented and life-oriented. Nick Rio and Laura Ogden show that the diverse Anishinaabe perspectives on alienated 
species offer ways for thinking about these plants and animals that goes well beyond colonial timelines and narratives signaled by terms like alien, colonizing, and native. I maintain that these diverse perspectives constitute indigenous or more specifically Anishinaabe resurgence in two ways. First, Anishinaabe perspectives and practices are rooted in Anishinaabe cosmologies, ontologies, and epistemologies. Second, Anishinaabe approaches promote life and are oriented toward Anishinaabe futurities. The words of Anishinaabe elders, harvesters, tribal historic preservation officers, and folks who work in tribal natural resource agencies reflect this Anishinaabe resurgence. And I want to note, I'm, I'm focusing today on Anishinaabe perspectives and responses not necessarily shared by all Indigenous people or even all Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe perspectives on alienated species are very diverse. Some perspectives align in part with Western colonial command and control approaches based on Western science. Yet those who hold these perspectives almost always blend them with the Anishinaabe lifeways and viewpoints with which they have grown up. Even with this blending, their approaches to alienated species are, are grounded in Anishinaabe ways of being and thinking. And this is especially true for harvesters, elders, and Anishinaabe kwe, or Anishinaabe women. So Anishinaabe elders, harvesters, and cultural resource managers were passionately against the term invasive because they feel it blames those plants and animals and makes them sound bad, which goes against their belief based on Anishinaabe ontologies that all beings in creation have a purpose. For example, one harvester stated, quote, everything has a purpose. It wouldn't be here growing from the earth if it didn't have a purpose. So who am I to call it invasive or not? I mean, in the end, unquote. She continued, but the whole thing was, with something called an invasive species is for me to ask the question, how did it get here? Why is it here? Where did it come from? And if it's obviously, if it's not artificial intelligence or like made in a lab, if it's natural and it comes from the earth, I don't care if it comes from the earth on the other side of the globe, it is still kin because it's here from the creator, you know, it's still a relation. This response relates to the Anishinaabe perspective that other beings, even those from other places, are understood as kin, a notion that Raramari or Tarahumara scholar Enrique Samon refers to as concentric ecology. In this Anishinaabe worldview, this sense of concentric ecology applies even to plants and animals that may have originated on the other side of the globe because they were all made by the creator. I call this radical relatedness or radical becoming related. It is both a symbolic and a material relatedness that acknowledges that human and other than human lives are joined through ceremony and subsistence. Radical relatedness with alienated species derives from Anishinaabe understandings of being and kinship. The sense that all beings have a purpose, even alienated species, suggests what Anne Finep Riordan calls collaborative reciprocity, or an interrelationship between humans and the other than human world that emphasizes that they materially constitute one another. For example, many indigenous groups understand that animals willingly give themselves to hunters if hunters treat them respectfully. Anishinaabeg understand alienated species as part of this system of collaborative reciprocity. One tribal historic preser preservation officer explained, quote, 
What we've been taught is that the creator put everything here for us, whether it came on, the, on a boat in the ballast waters of a ship or whatever, it ended up here and it thrived here. So it's here for a purpose. We won't ever know what they are for if we don't examine them and understand them better and call them what they are. I mean, that's one of our purposes here in creation for Anishinaabe people is that we are to keep a promise to the creator. And that promise is that we would name all there is to be named. So how do you do that? We have to research it. We have to understand it in order to give it its name. What is it that it does? What is it? How is it that it helps creation? In this example, the alienated species has an unknown purpose. And the role of the people in this reciprocal relationship is to learn what that purpose is. Other elders and harvesters shared that they had their own methods through ceremony, for example, for learning about these plants and animals and to find out why they are in their homelands and how the best and the best way to respond to them. Related to opposition to the term invasive, Anishinaabe proposed other names and terms for these plants and animals that are rooted in their relationship with the land and other than human beings. The most prominent alternative that I've found was the term in Ojibwe, which translates roughly as beings from elsewhere or beings from a different place. This Ojibwe term has been adopted by the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. It appear, appears in their climate adaptation menu. One tribe's invasive species program was renamed the Bakaningojigaundadug program in relation to this Ojibwe Moan term. Harvesters and elders also use terms like newcomer, visitor, and monodunes, meaning little spirit. For example, a black ash basket maker shared about their feelings and perspective on the emerald ash borer, which was the insect that was in the previous slide. And this insect, which you may have heard of, currently makes its way westward with the help of campers moving firewood from state park to state park and is causing the decline of ash trees. She said, quote, I was very angry. In the beginning, I was really pissed off. And I let people know that. I let organizations know that. I let entities know that. Well, what is that? We don't have, oh, sorry, let me go back a second. But then I started to take a look at the relationship to humans. Well, what is that? We don't have a word for pest in our language. We just have little spirit or monodunes. That's our word for a bug, an insect. They act as messengers. So what is the message for us? What are they trying to teach us? What are they trying to tell us? Ah, we're out of control. You know, so then I stopped being angry and I started being like, all right, humans, now let's have this conversation while we're making this basket, you know? Rather than seeing the emerald ash borer as a pest, as invasive, this person understands them as a spiritual messenger communicating that human action is out of balance with the rest of the natural world. Building off this, their response then is not eradication of the borer, but looking to where human behavior needs to change to prevent future introductions. Understanding alienated species as relations and as messengers directs a life-oriented response, one that emphasizes respect and humility toward other beings. This connects with the Anishinaabe creation story that tells how humans were the last beings to be brought or created on the earth after all of the other plants and animals, and then were tasked with naming everything that came before them. Sorry, one second. Um, they were tasked with naming everything that came before them. 
This story engenders respect for everything else in creation because according to this cosmology, the plants and animals are older and have more knowledge than humans. As one harvester noted, quote, I don't know what humans think they're doing. We're the last in the order of the creation. Everything else comes before us, unquote. As last in the order of creation, humans have less knowledge than plants and animals. They are meant to learn from those who came before them. This cosmology also places emphasis on the power of naming and the language one uses. An elder explains, quote, if we look at it from only one narrow perspective, you know, like, oh, they're an invasive species. As long as we call them invasive, we have this ideology that they're going to, you know, come out of the spaceship and kill us, you know, because that's how we're being conditioned to believe what that is. So if, so if we call them a different species, then we're like, oh, hey, what is that then? So it's our language too, and how we use that language in creation. You know, my language is not saying in the environment. I'm saying in creation, because that's what it is. This speaker suggests how these plants and animals are named is important because it indicates one relationship to those plants and animals. Perhaps this understanding arises from the ways in which Ojibwe uh, language indicates relationships with the natural world. So one example is the black ash tree, which is shown here. Uh, the Ojibwe word for black ash tree is bapagimak, meaning in English, the tree that you pound. And you can see people pounding this log here and the tree that you pound to get black ash splints for weaving baskets and the materials for making agim or snowshoes. The name shows the Ojibwe relationship to the tree, which also highlights as just a side note that language revitalization is closely tied to, to self-determination and land management. In addition, what these Anishinaabekwe point out is that naming indicates the relationship and the relationship directs the response. One such Anishinaabe re response is based in a sense of place agency. Place agency is Mohawk and Anishinaabekwe scholar Vanessa Watts's, Vanessa Watts's term for describing how the land has agency. Many harvesters and elders grant agency to the earth, sometimes referred to as Aki or Mother Earth. They trust that Aki will respond to alienated species in, their own, in her own way. They have faith that Aki knows the best way to respond. For example, an Anishinaabekwe harvester said, quote, I was just talking to somebody about what to do about the emerald ash borer. And they're like, we're not gonna do anything. We're gonna see what happens. And it's like, wow, that's for me, that's having a lot of faith, a lot of faith. And I have faith already. So it's like, that was really easy for me to connect to, unquote. This wait and see approach understands Aki as having its own way to respond to the changes the borer brings to the forest. An elder echoed this sense of place agency when acknowledging that humans can make things worse. He said, quote, but you know, that's what happens when you try to help mother earth out, so to speak. Sometimes you do more harm than good, unquote. This perspective understands Aki as having the ultimate agency and knowledge for knowing how to be in relation to alienated species. At the same time, many harvesters, elders, and tribal natural resource managers stress responding in a good way, or according to Bimadaziwin, the Anishinaabe concept for the good life. This response includes respect, humility, and future-oriented adaptation. Responding in a good way to alienated species is complicated by these plants and animals' entanglement with colonial ecological violence. That is, 
the colonial violence that causes eco-social disruption through ecological damage that J.M. Bacon theorized. The colonial ecological violence related to alienated species puts indigenous peoples in a very difficult bind. First, their worldview positions these plants as relations, but then these plants can be linked to devastating impacts to culturally important species. For example, manumen, which is shown here, or wild rice. This is the plant the Anishinaabe credit as the reason for their current homelands being where they are. Despite the importance of, of these plants, some still suggest doing nothing, acknowledging the profound potential loss of losing manumen or bapagimak. In contrast, others felt at times removal of plants and animals was necessary to protect certain older relationships. This focus on protection arises from a life-giving approach that considers not only the lives of Anishinaabe, but also their plant and animal relations. In these cases, with great difficulty, specific protocols were carried out to acknowledge the alienated plant or animal before removing them because they're still a relation. So they must be removed in a good way with respect and humility. Anishinaabe are forced to weigh these difficult uh, options resulting from the ecological violence settlers commit when they alienate species from their homelands. In addition, Anishinaabeg understand adaptation as at the root of their resilience as a culture and as a nation that has experienced genocide, the theft of their lands, and the continued disruption of their lifeways. But adaptation comes at a great cost for them. And these conversations often evoked deep grief for many Anishinaabeg who, while they're open to emerging relationships with new plants and animals, they also live with the intergenerational trauma of the loss of their lands and lifeways. Some Anishinaabe suggest integrating Western colonial and indigenous method methods to better understand alienated species and their purposes in creation. Then they would use that information to determine on a case-by-case -case basis how to respond in a good way, depending on the place and other contextual issues, such as which medicines, which foods, and other culturally significant species were being impacted. One tribe's program for managing alienated species relies on their own definitions of which plants and animals need to be managed rather than relying on federal and state lists of invasive species, which any, you know, we could all look them up online. You can find them. Instead of relying on those lists, they only manage plants and animals that impact culturally significant species used for food and medicine. But that's not, they don't always do that. So in one case, elders in the tribe requested that a specific plant that's on the state invasive species list not be removed because it's a medicinal plant that members were harvesting and using for medicinal purposes. The elders identified it as a healing plant that was needed exactly in that, at that particular time, which is a time of political upheaval for their tribe. As a result, the tribal natural resource manager relied on that knowledge, that indigenous knowledge to determine their response to the plant, which was not removal, it was an eradication. Instead, they were directed by elders with tribal ecological knowledges to protect the life-giving aspects of this alienated plants. So as you may have surmised, they're like, you know, figured out by this point, indigenous foodways and medicines are at the center of indigenous thinking about alienated species. They seek to protect culturally significant species that they know well, in addition to developing relations with newcomer species that they may need in the future. For this reason, all nine tribes prohibit widespread use of herbicides and pesticides. If these chemicals are used at all, it is used sparingly and not without 
not without controversy because applying pesticides is viewed as the opposite of life-sustaining. In addition, eradication is often not the goal of Anishinaabe natural resource management. A tribal resource manager explained that the tribe, quote, believes in everything being ready for seven generations in the future. So invasive species, the main reason that we manage it, but don't eradicate it, is because we want it to be available for seven generations in the future. We want the blueberries, the cedar, the ash, the walleye, for everybody, seven generations, to be able to do those cultural harvest activities. But we also want the knapweed and the knotweed and the mystery snail to be available if we're at a point where that's the only resource that's available. So everything that we do is thinking about those seven generations and it's managing so that it's sustainable at that point in the future as well. This life-oriented approach aims not only to sustain the plant and animal relations with whom they have these longstanding and culturally significant relationships, but also the alienated ones that may be causing significant change to their homelands. A future-oriented approach, it considers not only the lives of Anishinaabeg now, but also the generations to come. So I wanna turn now to talking about how these Anishinaabe perspectives help us to read Native American and indigenous literatures. I argue that at times Native American and indigenous literatures rely on Western colonial narratives and timelines in their discussions of alienated species. Yet at the same time, they also gesture toward possibilities of becoming with non-local beings. In addition, these literatures make visible the connection between alienated species and US settler colonialism and imperialism. Reading them through the lens of reading these texts through the lens of indigenous knowledges shows the ways in which they are they open toward possibilities for emerging relations, particularly in the form of radical relatedness, because is because which is radical because it conceives of kinship as related with beings from across the globe. So today, for today's talk, I'm just gonna focus on one text, Robin Wall Kimmerer's book of essays, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge and the Teachings of Plants from 2013. Kimmerer is a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and a Western trained botanist and ecologist who has authored two popular books for the public, Braiding Sweetgrass and Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Moss, as well as numerous scholarly articles in ecology and botany. Her work has been read widely and garnered praise from white, the white settler public. Indigenous scholars have taken a more critical approach to Kimmer's work. For example, Métis Cree sociologist Zoe Todd comments in a Twitter thread that Kimmer's failure to cite prior indigenous critiques of Western science erases the long history of those critiques by indigenous scholars. There is much to say about Kimmer's critique of Western science and her call to integrate Western science with traditional ecological knowledges. But today I'm going to focus on how braiding sweetgrass treats alienated species specifically. Kimmer's book makes clear the connection between alienated species and colonialism, though it relies on a metaphor of invasion rather than focusing on the phenomenological entanglement. The essays in the book use the figures of the immigrant and the settler, often interchangeably, to describe alienated species. The essays also use the term invasive species following Western colonial conservation discourse. 
In braiding sweetgrass, species are considered immigrants, some of whose behavior should be emulated. For example, the wild plantain, plantain also called white man's footstep, teaches humans to share space and be useful. For this reason, it is considered naturalized to use the language of botany that first applied to human citizenship. In contrast, invasive species like kudzu, loosestrife, and cheatgrass are immigrants whose behavior should not be copied because they behave like settlers bent, bent on taking and dominating rather than making a home. Figuring supposedly invasive plants as settlers reinforces the idea that the plant or animal is to blame for their alienation from their original homelands, which erases settler agency in these beings' presence in Anishinaabe homelands. So when I was thinking through an alternative for the term invasive species, I've had a lot of conversations with people who are practitioners of restoration ecology, volunteers, and people who this is their you know day, everyday job. And at, in those conversations, we also considered this term settler species as a possibility. But that the term doesn't accurately convey these plants and animals' entanglement with settler colonialism or racial capitalism. The plants and animals were introduced either intentionally or unintentionally through acts related to the invasive land ethic of white settlers. The newcomer plants about which Kimmer writes do have agency, of course, they have agency with respect to flourishing in the homelands in which they've been transported, but they only have this opportunity to flourish in a new habitat because in most because of in most instances, the shipping regimes of global capitalism and the settler colonial regimes of ecological transformation that create settlerscapes. One examples of these would be industrial agriculture, spaces of white settler recreation, and big box landscaping and gardening. To consider these plants and animals as akin to settlers obscures those regimes and the violence they cause across wide spatial and temporal scales. But perhaps more importantly, the category of invasive also limits potential responses to these plants and animals. The militarized biological invasion of in biological metaphor of invasion lends itself to a militarized response of eradication and control. The goal of eradication often leads to the increased use of chemical controls. But the use of chemical controls also results in disproportionate effects for indigenous peoples because they're engaged in subsistence hunting and gathering in the areas where chemical controls are used. In addition, the category of invasive forecloses emerging relations of reciprocity and responsibility. And this limit is especially problematic given that creating new relationships may be the most adaptive responses given, that, given the near impossibility of removing alienated species many of them, at least once they become established. Kimmerer herself notes that, quote, all things have a purpose and that we must not interfere with their fulfillment, unquote. If that's true, wouldn't plants like kudzu, loosestrife, and cheatgrass then also have a purpose? If all alienated species are to be considered invasive and settlers, that prevents a deeper understanding of these plants, a deeper understanding that seeks to know how and why these plants and animals came to be in their new location, what their purpose is in creation, and how to build relationships with them. So while, while braiding sweetgrass reinforces the Western colonial narrative of biological invasions in these problematic ways, I maintain that it also envisions indigenous resurgence in ways that reinforce indigenous ways of thinking about alienated species. 
So one example is Kimmerer's essay, The Sacred and the Superfund, which portrays the Onondaga Lake Salve waste beds, which are shown here in this picture, as a place that has begun to heal from environmental damage. And she talks about how alienated species are part of that healing. She doesn't use that term though, but that's what I argue is that she's saying they're part of the healing. The Onondaga Lake Salve waste beds are a super fun site on Onondaga territory filled with toxic chemical waste from nearby industrial factories and sewage sludge from Syracuse, New York, as well as an alienated plant called Phragmites and other quote, weedy species. That's the language Kimmer used to describe them. So in, in this essay, she defines true restoration as quote, entering into positive and creative relationships with the more than human world, meeting responsibilities that are simultaneously material and spiritual. So at the same time, though Kimmer describes the Phragmites that nightmarish as nightmarish in, at different points in this essay, there's still a suggestion of a positive creation, creative relationship with Phragmites, as well as the other alienated plants that she's writing about. Kimmer identifies common roadside weeds beginning to pop up in the area, and you can see some of that happening here. And she claims that, quote, plants are the first restoration ecologists. They are using their gifts for healing the land, for showing us the way. She maintains that even, quote, the slowly accreting community of weedy species can be a partner in a restoration, unquote. So, so that indicates, you know, these alienated species can be a partner. So based on this, perhaps plants considered invasive or weed need not be eradicated, but could be a partner because, quote, as she writes, they are developing ecosystem structure and function, beginning ever so slowly to create ecosystem services such as nutrient cycling, biodiversity, and soil formation, unquote. And for example, Phragmites is often used as a vegetation filter for cleaning soils contaminated by heavy metals in industrial areas, particularly because of its the properties in which it filters. Phragmites and these weedy species then can help in this ecosystem through the gifts they bring. But of course, it may take time for those gifts to become readily observable. In another example from Braiding Sweetgrass, Kimmer identifies an emerging relationship of collaborative reciprocity with an alienated plants, uh, specifically buckthorn which some of you may be familiar with. It is a particularly, it, it is a much hated plant, Buckthorn. In her short story, Defeating Windigo, which comes at the end of the book, a woman harvests the dark blue berries of the Buckthorn, a plant considered invasive. So there's, there's a short story where this is happening. Uh, she engages its medicinal uses to vanquish the legendary Windigo, a symbolic monster of greed which Kimmer aligns with capitalist extraction and environmental contamination. The story's speaker describes Buckthorn as, quote, a rampant invader of disturbed places, unquote, signaling that the agency of the Buckthorn is not the only factor in its success on Turtle Island. Rather, the land was already disturbed, which enables Buckthorn to take root. But she has a lot more to say about this powerful plant, quote, it takes over the forest, starving other plants of light and space. Buckthorn also poisons the soil, preventing the growth of any species but itself, creating a floristic desert. You have to acknowledge that it's a winner in the free market, a success, a success story built on efficiency, monopoly, and the creation of scarcity. It is a botanical imperialist stealing land from the native species, unquote. 
Like Western colonial discourse, the woman in the story characterizes Buckthorn as the group of humans she most maligns. For Western colonial US discourse, which my first chapter is based on, that's non-white immigrants. But for Kimmer, it's neoliberals and colonizers. But from a, an Anishinaabe perspective, Buckthorn is a nation with its own purpose and fulfillment. And to enter into relationship with Buckthorn means to learn its uses and then to use it. And Kimmer presents this perspective too in the story by detailing the uses of the Buckthorn. Quote, a small dose of Buckthorn is a laxative, a strong dose is a purgative, and a whole kettle, which the Windigo in her story greedily gulps down, an emetic, which induces vomiting. The Buckthorn, which this story speaker described as an invader akin to settlers and capitalist imperialists, provides a medicine gift that helps the speaker defeat and more importantly, heal the Windigo. Having drunk the entire kettle of buckthorn tea, the Windigo, quote, vomits up coins and coal slurry, clumps of sawdust from the woods, clots of tar sand, and the little bones of birds. He spews salve waste, gags on an entire oil slick, unquote. The woman in the story follows the buckthorn tea with additional plant medicines, willow and strawberries, wild leeks and cedars to heal the Windigo. But my point here is that buckthorn is part of the medicine that soothes and subdues the Windigo. The woman in the defeating Windigo tale acknowledges that, quote, she may not know what to do to defeat the Windigo, but the plants do, giving of their medicine gifts as they always do to sustain the world, unquote. In the story, buckthorn is one of the plants with knowledge and medicine gifts to share. But to partake of further, I would say to partake of buckthorn's knowledge and its medicine gifts, the woman must have had intimacy with the buckthorn. She must engage with it through harvesting and processing. And if the buckthorn had been eradicated, its powerful medicine would not have been available to her to use in defeating the Windigo. Kimmer's story suggests that even this much hated plant has beneficial uses with a role to play. And the story suggests that relationships of curiosity and collaboration with alienated species might provide understanding of the knowledge and the gifts they offer, which in turn could enlarge the circle of plant nations with whom one might have kinship relations, which in turn makes them more adaptable, makes people more adaptable for the future. So to conclude, I wanna say that I intend for this scholarship to speak back to the colonial structures of land management that seek to limit Anishinaabe food sovereignty, political sovereignty and cultural resurgence. I maintain that Anishinaabe approaches to alienated species represent indigenous resurgence in action because they're based on Anishinaabe ways of knowing, relating and being in the world because they are future and life oriented and because they reflect Anishinaabe people being indigenous. This is true even when they are blending indigenous knowledges with Western approaches. The approaches of tribal elders, harvesters, and cultural and natural resource managers help us to better understand the ways Anishinaabe literatures reinforce this resurgence. The stories we tell about alienated plants and animals and the policies and practice we developed, we develop in response to them have a range of impacts on tribal communities. State and federal funding for tribes restoration projects is often tied to the use of chemical controls and short timelines that do not allow for indigenous practices of restoration. State, federal and municipal bodies often fail to notify native nations when they spray and mow where tribal members collect medicines and foods. 
Indigenous approaches to alienated species also lack visibility, which is why I am researching this. To make these topics more visible to the public, I plan to create a digital public humanities project called the Atlas of Alienated Species that uses digital mapping and storytelling toward the restoration of indigenous lands. Some of you, if you've read Braiding Sweetgrass might uh, remember that term. Kimmer also talks about restoring lands. And in part, I wanna have the Alice do that through analyzing the political and cultural ecologies of alienated species around Turtle Island. The Atlas will be created in collaboration with tribes and would incorporate indigenous data sovereignty, intergenerational part participation and continuous cross-cultural education. And I put this scholarship in the service of Anishinaabe Nation's priorities, which includes self-determination over all aspects of land management, including responding to alienated species. Thank you so much. I'm gonna stop this and I'm happy to take questions. Hopefully we have some time. Thank you so much, Lisa, for that uh, absolutely fascinating talk and this incredibly exciting and interesting work that you're doing. Um, let me say again, um, uh, if you'd like to ask Lisa questions, please uh, send them to me in the chat, address them to me and I will share them with her. Lisa, I'll start off. Um, one of the things I find especially interesting about your work and the what you've shared with us today is your interest and respect for language and the agency of language, both the importance of indigenous languages and the terminology of the uh, indigenous peoples, but also the, the kind of agency of language like invasive and the implications and the impacts of that kind of language and the way that it exposes implication in, in settler colonialism and racial capitalism. Say a little bit more about your understanding of the negotiation between um, respecting the agency of indigenous languages and critiquing the agency of settler colonial language. Yeah, that, that, thanks for that question. Um, and as I'm thinking about answering it, I'm, I'm thinking so much about the conversations that I've had with people who do restoration ecology around the US. I've had a lot of conversations with folks in the Pacific Northwest and also just around the US. And actually this is something that they're, they're dealing with this um, on a, a, just on a daily and regular basis, because oftentimes they're the ones who are talking to the public. They're creating signage, right? People are coming to their natural areas. And I'm sure many of you have been to natural areas where you see, you know, a lot of this kind of militarized language. Um, and, you know, part of the reason they're thinking about it is because immigrants who are you know, recent immigrants or children of immigrants are coming to their natural areas and they are offended. By the language they don't feel welcome and so this has caused them to start thinking about well how do i um how do i think about this differently i don't know necessarily that they're um thinking about it in terms of the language of settler colonialism you know that's one of the important interventions i hope to make with my project you know and i put that language of invasion in the context of what i call a racial discourse of invasion which is used as a racial script using there, I'm using an, an idea from Natalia Molina about how 
you know, this kind of language of invasion is deployed, deployed against both, um, you know, non-human animals and human beings. You know, different groups at different times have this racial, this, this racial script kind of applied to them to frame them as invaders. Um, and as we know, you know, that has, and as you said, like language has a lot of power and, you know, language can be used to um, condition people to accept certain action, right? So framing certain groups as invasive conditions people to accept certain kinds of behavior, you know, treat, you know treatment for both human groups and um, non-human groups. Um, in terms of, so, so part of, you know, negotiating, critiquing that, that language, whether or not people recognize it as settler colonial language, is that it's enshrined in U.S. legislation, federal legislation, um, and then that trickles down to um, federal agencies, which are funding a lot of these organizations, right? They're funding also the municipal and state agencies, county agencies. They're often funding also the tribes. So everyone's forced to use this language um, in order to have that legibility to get funding. And, and there's so much more you could possibly say about that. And so agencies, uh, I should say like restoration ecologists who are practitioners also face that same dilemma, right? They're writing grants to get this funding. And, um, and at the same time, they really want, um, they want people to, uh, you know, know about alienated species and help to spread, you know, stop the spread, right? Based on their understanding of what restoration is. And they often will use this more militarized language as a way of activating people, right? It like triggers fear and that gets people to do things. Although I will say I recently, someone forwarded me an article, which I wish I could remember the authors, but if you're interested, email me and I will find it and send it to you that um, some folks in communication studies looked at how, like whether or not those, you know, what kinds of messages about alienated species were most, you know, promoted the kind of action people, you know, restoration and park managers wanted. And the militarized language wasn't the one that was the most activating, which I found really fascinating. But, you know, it's just this, you know, it's, it's the most common one that I've seen, um, I mean, now that you've heard this talk, you will see it everywhere, um, as I do. I'm constantly taking pictures at different nature parks of like, oh, here it is again. Um, but it's all over the congressional record, which I studied, you know, for my first chapter. Um, you know, it's in popular television, it's in popular science, news, it's all over news media. A lot of people uh, look at it in news media. Um, in terms of respecting, respecting the agency of indigenous language, um, I would say that that requires close relationships with the indigenous communities with which you're based. Um, I don't think it's okay to just like take up someone's language without really deeply talking to them about it. Um, and, and I don't even mean like, you know, consulting with them after you've decided what the name should be, but bringing them in from the very beginning, like maybe they don't care about the name, maybe they're fine with using it, you know, the word invasive, they might be. Um, but I think, um, I think it's really important to talk to those organizations. 
but I, or to those nations. I will say for the folks that I partner with and collaborate with, I mean, they, as I've expressed, like the, the power of the, the agency of the language is very clear to them and it has profound implications um, in a, a huge range of things. Um, and I actually had, uh, so, you know, I have to get approval for all the things that I put out into the world based on my research from them. And I had, um, so I sent this to one of the, well, I sent, I sent it to all nine of the Native Nations, but one, actually the president of one of the Native Nations called me, which I was really shocked about. And he was like, oh, I really like this. I don't have any suggestions. And then at the end of, you know, we had kind of a conversation about other things. And at the end, he was like, oh, if you could put in more Anishinaabe words, that would be, you know, that's what you should do. So, um, yeah. Thanks. The next yeah. question has to do with your research methodology and your conjunction or your combination of uh, social science ethnographic methods on the one hand and literary critical analysis on the other. Can you say a little bit more about why that's the important method that you use and how you understand the relationship between those two methods? So in the talk, you, you, you presented first the ethnographic work that you had done, and then you moved to the literary studies, which... Uh, it, you you might argue that that suggests a kind of priority to the ethnographic methods, and the question really wants to get at your understanding of the relationship between the the two approaches that you combine. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm a literary scholar and a cultural studies scholar. Um, that's my training, and um, most of my research is in that area, um, like the other projects I've worked on. Um, but I have found um, that this, these other methodologies uh, in, in the humanistic social sciences just will really help me better understand the, the literature and cultural objects that I'm studying. So that, that's the relationship. And um, I don't know that I'd necessarily give one priority over the other, um, but but I do see the social science methodologies as aiding my, my literary um, and, and critical analysis. And that's the main reason that I do it. So, I mean, I do, you know, at the same time, I do have other research in which I'm, I'm primarily doing just the a more social science ethnographic um, work um, that I think makes sense, you know, for those particular research questions for that for that project, you know, and for this project, I'm thinking a lot about perspectives, right? And stories and poems are like, are a really wonderful way of learning about, you know, different perspectives, looking at all kinds of different documents, right? The congressional record. I, you know, I look at Duck Dynasty, for example. You learn a lot about cultural perspectives by close reading of these documents. Thank you. The next question has to do with your um, discussion of uh, indigenous resurgence mm -hmm. and the kind of complexity that you find in the, the examples of indigenous resurgence. And the one that comes to mind is the critique by other native scholars of, of certain limitations by their account of Kimmerer's methodology and Kimmerer's approach. Mm -hmm. And th the way in which it, it seems that Native resurgence, given the history of settler colonialism and racial capitalism, entails almost necessarily a kind of accommodation to trauma. In order for resurgence to 
even occur for this, this native agency to be reasserted means that it, it, it must be marked by, by the impacts of settler colonialism, that there's some kind of a, a, accommodation, I don't know if that's the right word that needs to happen. Would you say a little bit more about your understanding of the relationship between um, indigenous resurgence and the impacts, the ongoing impacts and the, the kind of hegemonic quality of settler colonialism and racial capitalism? Yeah. Uh, well, I just would agree with you that trauma like just runs deeply through all of this. You can't um, work on or think about or try to be a part of indigenous resurgence without really thinking deeply and being attentive to the intergenerational trauma that's there. But also, you know, I was really struck in my conversations with people that, you know, my questions were all focused on you know, new plants and animals. I, I wasn't asking about trauma, um, but boarding schools came up again and again, language loss came up again and again, loss of elders, right? And all of these things are really, um, you know, entangled with settler colonialism. And so, you know, and, and, and so the lasting impacts, you know, of, of that, um, of settler colonialism, it, you know, I want to, I guess, talk more specifically about land management, right? Indigenous resurgence in land management. So, um, so, you know, these are native nations, right? They have a nation to nation relationship with the United States, right? They're sovereign nations, but they are, you know, one of the difficulties that occurs because of the way, you know, the United States and so their relationship is with the U.S. federal government. So they have to go through the U.S. federal government, but then they're on reservations within states, right? And so they have, there's constantly this struggle between negotiating all these different relationships with different, you know, governance structures, right? The state, the city, the county, and all these different groups are making management decisions, right, um, you know, that, that impact them. And so these particular tribes, like they have um, seeded and unseeded territory and they're supposed to be able to harvest and hunt all over the, uh, the, uh, the seeded territory, which is a very large area. But, you know, in, so, and then that's part of their indigenous resurgence, right? Practicing those treaty protected rights. But over and over again, those treaty protected rights are infringed upon by these different, you know, levels of, settler um settler state um and i'm not sure if that answered your question but that's kind of an ongoing impact where you know they are unable to protect or um the relationships that they have with culturally significant species um because of other decisions being made that nobody asks their no one consults with them and even when they often make a recommendation it is not followed so, I mean, I'll just, I mean, Manuman, wild rice is a huge example. It's being, I mean, it's a big deal right now. There, It's being impacted not only by climate destabilization, destabilization, but development, you know, like it requires a certain water level. Um, and But people, you know, who aren't tribal members have bought land on the lake because of allotment and the various other things, right? So they have, like, there are these lake associations that want things a certain way around 
on the lake and a wild rice bed is not their priority, right? And yeah, it's, I mean, so that's an ongoing, that's a, I mean, it's happening today and it's been an ongoing impact for a long time. The next question has to do with the Atlas of Alienated Species that you mentioned toward the end of your talk. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that Atlas and why that project makes sense to you as an important project to undertake. Yeah. Uh, so on the one hand, I think part of what led me to develop that project are responses that I got from the people that I was interviewing and just people I was talking to about my project. I had a lot of conversations about the project outside of the interviews because people wanted to know what I was doing there. Um, but they also were like, oh, I want to know what you found. Can you share the results of this? And there will be, you know, I'm, I'm making a, a really comprehensive report for the tribes that will only go to the tribes that has some more um, culturally sensitive information that's not appropriate to share beyond the tribes, um, specifically like ways of using a lot of these um, alienated species. And so, you know, that sparked for me that, you know, sharing this information not only between you know, the nations where I was working, which is a, a large group, I worked with nine native nations, but then there are probably other places where you know, there could be this knowledge sharing. And um, you know, the data sovereignty piece will be a really important part of that. And I, I will be looking at different projects that already exist. You know, there are digital archives of traditional ecological knowledge that are you know, they have safeguards so that only certain people can access them. So that will be really important. And you know, all of that will be driven by um, the, the nations that I'm working with and the people who wanna be involved. Um, but I really hope, um, I think it needs to be intergenerational. Um, you know, elders are so important in um, Anishinaabe um, culture and, and many indigenous cultures and they hold the knowledge. So um, whenever I was able to get an interview with an elder, I was just, it was the best thing because they, they just have so much knowledge to share and um, there aren't very many. So um, having them involved in the project, I think will be really important, not just so that they can have that, um, that knowledge for their, their community for generations to come. Could you say a little bit more about the restoring aspect of the atlas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, this kind of this idea kind of comes from Kimmer, but also Zoe Todd has a project about restoration and restoring in relation to fish. Um, so part of that is, you know, using stories, probably oral histories. I haven't fully fleshed out that part, but probably oral histories related to specific plants and animals. Um, and, you know, as maybe was evident from my talk, like often these conversations branch out into a wide variety of different areas. So it would really be about, you know, what is the story of the, this land, right? These lands where these people have lived for millennia, right? Since time immemorial, you know, what are those stories and how can that inform, you know, how we respond? And, and, you know, in my mind, it's really important because of climate destabilization. And I didn't say this in my talk, but almost everyone I talked to related uh, a recent increase in invasive uh, alienated species in their area the past 50 years or so to climate change. Like in their minds, it's very clearly related to climate change. And so 
you know, plants and animals are going to be moving. They're already seeing it, right? The birch, the maple, they're moving north. Um, and also people are going to be moving. So it's, it's, it seems, you know, time sensitive in that way to start thinking about um, how to engage with these, these plants and animals a little differently. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for sharing this fascinating work in progress talk with us. Thank you for this really important work that you're doing. It's been such a pleasure to learn about it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks everyone again for joining us for Lisa Fink's Work in Progress Talk, the last of the term, but please join us next term for Work in Progress Talks and our lecture series, Continuing Imagining Futures. For more information about the, all, of that, uh, all of that, you can go to the Oregon Humanity Center's website, that's ohc.uoregon.edu, and we'll see you next term.